Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's guest on the Playmakers Playbook has what I reckon is one of the best jobs in Australian sport. But perhaps in the current environment, it is also one of the most challenging. Matt Carroll is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Olympic Committee. He can't say for sure whether there will be an Olympic Games in Japan next year, but he's doing everything he can to make sure the Australian team will be raring to go if the green light is given. But Olympic sport is only part of the Matt Carroll story. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by Build Corp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Matt Carroll is regarded as one of Australia's best sports administrators. He was in charge of the 2003 Rugby World Cup. He helped build Super Rugby and launched Soccer's A-League. And for a moment, early in 2020, it looked like he might be the man to help rebuild Australian rugby. That wasn't to be, but he has some advice for those who are trying. Career highlights? Well, there's a long list. And somewhere near the top sit six glorious weeks in 2003. The moment Johnny Wilkinson broke Australian hearts in the final of the 2003 Rugby World Cup and uh, the man who was in charge of delivering that World Cup and what a time it was in this country, Matt Carroll, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Absolute pleasure, Nick. Good to see you. Good to catch up. You are one of Australia's most experienced sports administrators, but I reckon out of everything you've done, everything you've achieved, um, being the general manager at that World Cup, that has to be right up there in terms of uh, your list of highlights. Oh, it certainly was. I mean, it was a great privilege um, and honour. And uh, we we changed the the way uh, a World Cup uh, was organised and the way, way a World Cup should be presented and run. You know, um, and even our our competitors uh, in future years for for World Cups uh, agree that two thousand and see two thousand and three set the benchmark. And so it was great to be part of the team. We re, uh, we even delivered a great profit, um, some to uh, World Rugby and. Uh, some to uh, Rugby Australia, as Australian Rugby Union as it was in those days. It was also um, a great time for the country. Um, the, the country got right behind it. People who never followed rugby um, at all got you know, picked a team. I remember the game down to the match in Tasmania. 
um, and in, in Launceston and the the, uh, the mayor down there said uh, whoever's uh, birth date was on an even day had to support one team, his birth date was on another, another on an odd day had to support the other team. So it was great. Exactly right. And I guess just a few years after the Sydney Olympics too, it was uh, it really was a, a wonderful time for the country. You grew up in Mossman in Sydney, um, played more than 250 games of rugby for the Mossman Club, later became president. Your family was in construction. Uh, how did your early life shape the leader that you, that you would become? Um, look, I think you know, my father was a, was a builder. He started off as a carpenter, so he built his, his business. Um, he was a no-fuss uh, sort of guy, um, you get on with the job. You know, you take things as they come along. The building building industry is a tough industry, and it, and it teaches that teaches you that resilience. Um, you know, control the things you can control, um, and and deal with the things you can't <laughs> the best way you can. And uh, look at and yeah, we had a, with a good family. Went to a, a good 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 school, St Joseph's College. Bit similar sort of thing. You know, teach teach resilience. Um, you know, you, you you don't complain, you don't whinge, you get on with the job. How does that then feed into um, your leadership? How would you describe yourself as a leader? Um, look, I, um, I suppose it's the sort of thing you grow into in some in some respects, and you learn along the way. Um, you know, I, uh, I learned a lot in this that we were just talking about before of two thousand and three, because uh, you know went went from looking after every size staff to people in the hundreds, uh, if not you know, throwing the volunteers thousands. So. You, you, I think I think the most important thing is to lead by example. Um, I think uh, example speaks far more than words. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people can preach things and talk about things, but it's actually how you do things, and and not just in terms of the business you might be in at the time, but uh, I mean how you um, communicate with your staff, how you respect people, um, how you um, uh, you can live your life in many ways. It, it is that you know you, you, then you can command respect. And if you have respect, uh, then people will come with you on the journey. Living the values, I guess. Well, it is living the values, but as I said, it is setting the example. Uh, because if you if you don't set the example, then um, then people will lose confidence um, in in your leadership and say, oh well, you know, this organisation does it a bit uh, takes the easy route or you know, takes the easy way or doesn't respect others. Uh, so I think that's that's very important. You did a degree in construction, worked in your father's construction company for a while. Um, so you were on that path. Um, why did you make the change to sport administration? Um, the last time our country had a recession, uh, we, as we head into one now, uh, was the recession we had to have. Um, those who uh, were around at the time might remember the interest rates in those days weren't at uh, you know, 3%. They were at, um, I think, home loans were about 15. Uh, business loans were 18. It went over your overdraft, it went into the 20s. Um, the country came to a halt, the building industry came to a halt. Um, there was no work on at all, um, and so we had to, we had about a hundred odd people working for us at the time, and we had to lay them off. And uh, I happened to be on the board of the New South Wales Rugby Union at the time, and they were in that uh, interesting challenge of uh, Concord Oval. Uh, Gary Pierce was the CEO at the time, and uh, Gary offered me a short-term contract to help out on a few things, and I had nothing else to do at the time. Um, and decided that rather than uh, uh, up with trade unions and a few other things which were pretty tough in, in, in that period of time I thought I'll, I'll stay with uh, with sport uh, I mean it's mean, similar sort of thing it's a, it's a people industry construction is a people industry um, it's about getting projects done about getting uh, people coming together to make things happen I was going to make that parallel I mean you've been referred to I think over the years uh, as Matt the builder when you when you were uh, at uh, Australian rugby 
uh, you you were often referred to as Matt the Builder. Well, yes, I'm two two councillors. I tended to take things as a project, so get things done, and uh, um, always decided the office needed a bit of a renovation. When I turned up as well. But no. <laughs> uh, you, you've been involved. Um, with a lot of, I guess, powerful and, and influential business and, and sporting leaders over the stretch. Uh, and you've led great change in some of the organisations that you've been at. Um, let's begin with your current role as Chief Executive Officer of the AOC. What did you face? What was the, the culture, the situation that you faced when you got to the AOC in 2017? Well, it was an interesting period. It's not that long ago. Um, the week I arrived was the started in the role um, was the week before the um, annual general, annual general meeting where John Coates was being challenged for the presidency. So there was a whole whirlwind of uh, politic and opinion and media attention uh, and uh, a fair bit of uh, angst would be the best way of putting it uh, between various parties within the organisation itself. There was a degree of dysfunctionality um, had had a sort of occurred over a number of years. People said, you know, was the culture bad? Look, I think the culture needed, certainly needed improving, but it was one where um, silos had opened up. Uh, people didn't respect each other, going back to uh, what, I, what I said before. I think that was probably uh, important. Um, off the back of the 2012 games, um, there was a report that we needed, that the organisation needed to improve how it employed people, how it brought people into the games teams, as in, you know, um, staff and, and volunteers. Uh, that wasn't learnt. The lessons learned in 2012 were, you know, through to 20, 2016 as well. And um, about the two reports when I read them, I said, well, obviously we didn't learn much from the first time around in 12. We carried on in, into 2016. So, and I guess there was this sort of, um, uh, sort of lack of a uh, bit of a me, to, me, me attitude. No, it, was, it was about me uh, rather than uh, about we um, occurring in the organisation. And you know, when I started the job, you know, John Case said to me, he said, we've really got to start to broaden our focus. Um, and he pointed me, to the, as he would, in the direction of the Constitution, <laughs> where, where, which, is, which is fine, actually. And you know, when, when I started to work out how the Olympic world worked, because it works a bit different to the rest of, uh, of sport. And you know, the, the uh, objectives of the AAC um, contained what, what our mission was. Um, and it was just, we... We'd been doing the teams with, um, and getting you know, athletes to games and things of that nature, but we hadn't been doing the things of the, the bigger picture of Olympism, you know, health, education, uh, in schools, in the community. Um, and John particularly wanted us to get uh, in support of uh, our Olympians and athletes um, as, they, as they retire from their careers. So things are broad, a broader reach. And once we got, I got that sort of... Uh, uh, where we're going, uh, direction uh, embedded in the organisation, uh, then you could, we could start to um, rebuild, rebuild the culture. I mean, they weren't bad people, don't get me wrong, um, but they just were dysfunctional uh, was, was the best word I think I could use. Hence, I called it, uh, I didn't call it restructures or anything else. Uh, what I call it was a reset. We're going to push the reset button and start again. You put uh, a lot of the same people who were there, though, you, I think you moved some of their roles and gave them different titles and that sort of thing. How, how does that um, fit with just a general turnaround? Is, is, that, is that a basis of a general turnaround? Well, it, it, you often know that dysfunctionality is because people actually don't know exactly what they're meant to do um, and what, what they're working towards and what they're responsible for. And that, and that was, uh, you know, some of the, the, the senior managers had jobs which would like a bucket. You know, things were just thrown into it and, and without any thought how, how they were all connected together. 
So bringing clarity uh, to, to, the, to the roles and hence the, the changes in, in, in a number of the roles, clarity and responsibility that, you know, in the games area, it's not a matter of just getting people to the um, athletes to the games. It's a, it's a management of our, our members, uh, our member sports. Um, you know, we call them national federations. I like to call them the member sports because they are our members and they are the, whom we, we uh, exist for. And, you know, my first management meeting, I said to everyone, you know, the AOC does not win gold medals. It doesn't win silver medals or bronze medals. The, the AOC facilitates the opportunity for the sports and their athletes to win medals. And that's whom we look after. And so it's sort of that, that change in attitude. It's about uh, we're, a, we're a membership uh, organisation and we need to service our members and look after them. We do, we do it really well and advocate on their behalf for many things. Then uh, they'll succeed and their athletes will succeed. And Australia will succeed. You mentioned there John Coates, and obviously you work so closely with him as president of the AOC, and, and he was recently re-elected as vice president of the IOC. Why is he uh, such an effective leader and, and with such longevity as well? <laughs> he's, um, he's absolutely committed to the Olympic movement. Um, it's, uh, you'd have to say it's been the best, largest part of his life. I mean, not taking away from his family or anything of that nature at all, but in terms of his career, um, he's absolutely committed to it. He knows it backwards. Um, you know, his, his encyclopedic knowledge of the, of the Olympic movement and who's who in various parts of the world and is, uh, is unbelievable. Um, and he's meticulous, uh, being a good lawyer uh, background, <laughs> very meticulous in, in, in those spaces. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. We work well together. As, as I said to him after a few weeks, I said, ah, builder meets lawyer. Uh, we, have a different, <laughs> we have a different approach to things, but uh, that's okay. We, we both respect each other and uh, it's working very well. Well, we're talking Olympics, um, the Japan Games already postponed once. Can anyone say for sure that they will go ahead or, or are you just um, looking and, and hoping? Well, I think nothing in this world is ever for sure, um, but um, certainly... Um, Tokyo Organising Committee, the IOC, uh, the government, both Tokyo Metropolitan and the National Government of Japan, are all working very hard uh, to make it happen. So uh, all the venues have now been confirmed, uh, the village is confirmed, the schedule is confirmed, we know, know the dates for all the events, uh, so the, the athletes now know their dates. So they're, they're, they're all locked in, um, they're getting on with the logistical planning. They are, as I think the uh, IOC president said the other night, you know, looking at various scenarios. You know, obviously, if there's a vaccine, different sort of approach. But everyone is, is approaching the game that there will be no vaccine. So there could be quarantine periods. We're certainly planning on the fact that we may, we will, may have to or require to, to have our, all our athletes in Australia and, and put them through a quarantine and a bubble, still training and all those sorts of things. Um, and they arrive in Tokyo, you know, uh, COVID free. Um, and into the village and you know, also you know, things such as don't have the whole team there at the same time. So the athletes in the first week will be there and then we'll bring them in the others uh, as, they, as their events come along. And once you finish your event, uh, go home. Um, so that takes the load, load off the village and takes the load off the organisation in terms of keeping everyone health, healthy and wellbeing. But I'd say later this year, around October, November, TOCOL will have you know, crystallised a lot of their plans. Um, obviously, like or governments, everyone else, are waiting to see how this pandemic uh, flows on. Um, but no, we're, we're very confident um, that, that it will happen. So, I mean, it's over a year away. Mm. Um, and as we all know, a lot's happened in four months. So <laughs> heaven knows what could happen in 12 months. And, you know, I think, I think you've got to be optimistic. I think the world 
wants to be rid of this uh, virus. And I've no doubt that governments and organisations are working hard for that vaccine. Uh, and also perhaps measures so people can't get sick from it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a vaccine. Do you uh, communicate with athletes? I imagine you know, mentally it's, it's probably pretty tough, that uncertainty. Yeah, we do. We've done that from the very beginning, back in when I say the beginning of this of this crisis, back in March. Uh, myself and in uh, Chester and our chef de mission, um, we were holding weekly, um, you know, Zoom teams calls uh, with with that, our long list athletes. So that, uh, both, but also the officials as well, because they're, they're part of uh, that, that needing that certainty. Um, so in those early early meetings, it was about trying to provide that certainty and keep them uh, up to date with information as we got it. Yeah, the game you're asking before the games, uh, I think, are, are fine. The challenge is around the qualification and and for athletes to get that competition. You know, I'm talking to Athletes Australia, and they obviously want to get athletes back into the Diamond League. You know, I was talking to sailing Australian sailing yesterday, and regattas are starting in Europe, and it's a bit easier because you can move around Europe by by road, and whereas you can't do that in Australia. So, um, the government, um, you know, has talked about the, the Trans Tasman bubble, um, obviously held up a bit now because of the sad uh, events in, in Victoria. Um, but down the track, that's a great possibility for athletes as well. So they're the sort of things we keep the conversation, keep going with with all the sports, with the athletes. And that, that I hope, reassures them. Um, and that's that leadership the AOC can provide that we're thinking about it, you know, that we're not just sitting back and waiting and twiddling our thumbs. You're on the case. Um, before, the, uh, before the AOC... You spent about three years as CEO of Yachting Australia. I think you're a sailor and you're keen sailor in your in your time as well. Well, my father was, my brother certainly was. We used to have a, a boat down at Middle Harbour Yacht Club, and um, so I did quite a bit of sailing um, over the years and a bit of social sailing as well. So you know, it, I mean, it's a great sport. Um, when we were younger, we had uh, a skiff, or a series of skiffs. So my father, as I said, was a keen sailor, so we taught us sort of sail. Um, so no, and it's a great sport. Uh, for and it, and it, you know, it, it's not just a wealthy person sport. Just sitting in Hobart, it's uh, I mean, there's a lot of yacht clubs out in out in uh, regional parts of our states um, on little lakes when they when the water's flowing, where people go sailing. Exactly. Uh, in that time with Yachting Australia, um, you moved that organisation from a federated model to a, a centralised model. That's never an easy process, I imagine, and and. It does have implications for something we'll talk about a little later, and, and that being rugby. But but with Yachting Australia, how difficult was that, and and what were the sort of things that you had to deal with there? Well, I, I'd stayed away from the word constitutional reform because that always scares people. I called it organisational reform. Um, and look, the important thing is to, it's what we said at the very beginning, you've got to win trust of people. Um, so you put in place. We, I put in place a process of consultation. We had, we had to provide a reason for change. You can't just tell people oh, you got to change because you, know, you have to. You have to provide them a reason for change. They accept that reasons, then you can move on on with the process. So it was very important to have that that dialogue with the with the state uh, associations, and also importantly, and this took a little bit of political, as it does in sport, to get down to the clubs and have that same dialogue with the clubs. Um, and it wasn't simple. I mean, the president of uh, Yachting Queensland was dead set against it all. But to be fair to him, he said, if my clubs agree with it, I'll support it. Okay. I said, so I was able to talk to the clubs. They had a general meeting. The clubs supported it unanimously. And so he, he locked, locked, locked in with it. Uh, but it was organised. They didn't get rid of the states um, what it, at all. And in fact, all it, all it did was um, reorganise the, the business so that everyone was, in, all the staff were employed by. Um, which we changed the name to Australian Sailing. So I used to say to the board, you go sailing, you don't go yachting. <laughs> Certainly not 
So, uh, I mean, we had to get away from that sort of, you know, stigma of upper end sort of thing. And, um, and then people embraced the word sailing. They said, oh, all the yacht clubs will complain. I said, no, they won't. No, they need to get members as well. I've said this to other sports who've asked me about it. I said, you've got to build up trust. The, the state associations have to trust the president of the national organisation and the CEO that they're in it for the right reasons. We might come back to that because, as I said, the, that sort of governance change is what many believe Australian rugby uh, might need at the moment. And speaking of rugby, it's a long history that you have with uh, with that sport, with both New South Wales and the Australian Rugby Union, as it was at the time. We talked about the World Cup. You were GM of that event, GM of the ARU, CEO of New South Wales Rugby, a member, uh, a board member, rather, of New South Wales for a time as well, as you mentioned, and deputy CEO of the ARU. You were made a member of the Order of Australia for your services to rugby. What do you love about the game of rugby? I, I thoroughly enjoyed the game, not as any great height. <laughs> I'm not tall enough for great height, I assure you. Uh, but uh, at uh, club rugby, I you know, played rugby at school. I played rugby you know, since I was eight years old. I uh, then played at school, um, high school. Um, and then um, sort of was deciding who I was going to play for. And a mate of mine rang me up and said, oh, can you give uh, Mossman Colts a hand? Uh, they're a bit short this weekend. And that was uh, the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. Take your pick. Um, so I stayed, stayed with Moss and a lot of good friends. Uh, they're having a few, not like all clubs, too, getting a few difficulties and things of that nature. And so I got on, ended up with a committee. Uh, got, must have not been in a meeting, got made a, a, a delegate to the second division committee. So ended up in that and then ended up chair of that, which put me on the Sydney Rugby Union board, ended up chair of Sydney Rugby Union when I was about 29 and um, on the board of uh, New South Wales and the council, what was then the Australian Rugby Union, uh, before, before I turned 29. So I'd, I'd enjoy it. And, you know, you, you can make a difference. And I think that's the most important thing. You, you go into this, not, not for yourself, you go in to make a difference. Because if you're not making a difference, you should get out. Uh, and, you know, that's, and I've always said, you know, if people start to think I'm just not doing anything or not making a difference, tap me on the shoulder and tell me it's time, time to go. Uh, because uh, it's, it's not about the, the person, it's about the sport that you're involved with. Um, and I often say to people, you know, who do you need on boards? And I talk about skill mixes and things of that nature and all that sort of good stuff. And I said, you need people who care. They have to care about the sport because if they don't care, they won't put the time in, nor cop the politic and the rough and tumble that goes with it. Well, it was an amazing time in rugby, wasn't it? I mean, um, turned professional in 1995. John O'Neill was the ARU's first CEO in the professional era. Um, you spent pretty much the next 17 years as his right-hand man in rugby and, and in soccer with the FFA. Now, um, I've tried to find a, a, a polite way of saying this, but John can be a polarising character, uh, but you, you clearly had an outstanding working relationship with John O'Neill. What made that relationship so successful? Oh, I think, um, well, I think, we, well, again, both of us respected each other uh, for our ability. We are different personalities, but that's, that's fine. And John, John, he could be polarising, but again, because he wanted to make a difference to the sports. He wasn't going to just sit back and coast along or bend and, and just, you know, I'll put it simply, cop second place. Um, that's just not in, in John's, uh, you know, uh, way of doing anything. He he he, want, he wanted to make sure that rugby was in first place, uh, whereas first place amongst the sports in Australia or first place in, in world rugby, all the Wallabies were you know, winning World Cups and uh, you know, we, we, we won a World Cup and came damn close uh, in 2003 to win two World Cups, um, which, you know, which, which would have been great. But um, 
sorry, it would have been three World Cups by then. Um, so that, so that, that in general respect for me and John and John, you know, respected my ability, you know, organisational ability, uh, you know, the leadership of the people who get, get things done. Um, you know, the no nonsense sort of uh, approach. Plus also, um, you know, I could, because I, I knew a lot of people around the, around the traps in rugby, so I'd give them a briefing on who's who in the zoo. Um, and, uh, but also, you know, watch his back and res- we respected each other. Um, and I think that's probably the best way of putting it. Um, in terms of leadership philosophies, I think he's on record as saying that um, you have to be happy to challenge the norm, um, to, yeah. to be content sometimes with upsetting people, uh, to not have a problem with that if it's going to get you to your destination. Well, you, you do. And, you know, even, you know, we can go back to sailing. We upset people. There's no doubt about that. I mean, meeting with one president, I'll leave name of the state station, threw me the, threw the uh, KPMG report at me. Uh, sorry, the EY report at me. Um, so, um, um, and I said, is that the best you can do? As it went past my ear. Um, but, and it's the same thing in football, uh, you know, with the start of the A-League, um, you know, we were committed to get the A-League up and there were state associations who were dead set against it. Um, but, you know, that was going to, that that was the best thing that could happen to that sport. And, you know, John was committed. I was committed with him, obviously with Frank Lowy. And you, you just cop it and you've got to get on with it. You, you can't, as you just said, you can't accept second best. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What about um, when you're working hand in glove with with someone like that? Is it important to have uh, complementary um, aspects to your leadership? I mean, in some ways, did you have different leadership that that complemented each other, or were you the same sort of leader? Oh, no, I think we're different. Yeah, no, very. I think that, that was the thing. It complemented uh, complemented each other, as as you said, John. <clears throat> it could be polarizing, and. Um, uh, I guess I was took a bit more even approach um, sometimes um, and try to bring bring people along, but but equally, you know, I can be very definite. So, um, you know, I don't you have the conversations, but you know, and then you reach point. Sorry, guys, it's time for a decision because we have to get on. You can't keep going around in circles. And you know, Sansar was always an interesting discussion because all Sansar decisions had to be unanimous. Uh, <laughs> it was just. Um, uh, mind-numbing sometimes the ongoing debates. I was going to say, is that sometimes why things don't get done at a at a sense oh, level? You know, that's, and it, it's sort of it. it, it but you get, again, though, you, yes, you engage and you go through the process, but eventually you've got to make a decision. Um, and you know, both John and I was on the same page there. We have to make the decision. No one's leaving the room until the decision is made. You, know, you can't put it off for eternity. There are a couple of things you achieved in rugby which kind of might inform uh, some of the decisions being made right now. You helped up, uh, set up uh, Super Rugby and the Tri-Nations and now for various reasons those competitions are having to be you know, recalibrated. Um, if you had to start again now, what would Super Rugby uh, look like for you? Yeah, well, we Super Rugby went through, we set it up and then we went through two alliterations um, and, and, and the final one 
was when we brought Melbourne into the competition. We had the groups, we had the conference structure and, and, the, and the five. And I mean, all, all the way along, it was, you know, to ensure you, you've got to build a competition which you know, the players can perform in and the fans can understand and, and, and work with. It was always tough because of the South African component in terms of time zones and, and things of that nature. Um, and it was also also one of the um, most expensive competitions in the world to run because of the, the, the cost of it. Um, when we were moving, you know, towards the end of the, I think it was sort of up the, the alliteration we brought um, uh, Melbourne in with, you know, we came up with a plan there to go to what they're already looking at now, the Trans-Tasman competition. Uh, we actually took it to your former bosses. Um, <laughs> and and it was higher value because you got more games in the right time zones and you cut out a lot of the travel costs. I mean, the South Africans were leaving Sansa more times than they were joining. Uh, they often used to say, oh, we're going to pull out, we're going to pull out. In fact, after I left Australian rugby, Bill Culver got me back for a cup of coffee and said he was having difficulties with South Africans. And I said, well, tell me something I don't know. Um, and he said, oh, they, they're talking about leaving. I said, well, tell them to leave. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, but what if they do? Well, that'd be good, but they won't. <laughs> um, so it's always, but it, that has been the challenge of super rugby is the, is the, um, is the South African piece, and not not look got a lot of good people um, in South African rugby. Don't get me wrong, and they, when going back before Super Rugby, um, Super Ten, um, it was the catalyst of, of uh, the broadcasters in South Africa uh, when South Africa came came out of the apartheid era. Uh, they got Super Super Rugby underway, um, and it was their money that kicked it off, and then ultimately New Zealand's money um, in 1995-96 that got the, everything really rolling. But without without that early investment, um, it, it would not have been. Uh, but look, you know, rugby, since my involvement in rugby, we've had um, the South Pacific Championship, the Super Six, um, the Super Ten, um, Super Rugby with 10, Super Rugby with 12, Super Rugby with 15. If they get, I, I still think the best one would be with, Tas- with the New Zealanders um, at this point in time. Um, I'd leave the Argentinians out, it's too far away for Super Rugby. Japan, maybe, you know, but it, it's. Um, Rugby isn't the most pop, isn't the popular sport in Japan. They did well in the World Cup, but you know the sport of um, baseball is their most popular sport, and and football is is ahead of um, of rugby as well. And they, the, the Japanese need to work on their competition and how that might integrate into into a future Super Rugby competition. But certainly with the New Zealanders, I think they can build a great comp. Um, and, and Kiwis can be equally as um, balanced, chips on both shoulders. That's all right. Um, and you just got to work. You got to work with them. But again, a lot of good people in New Zealand over the years. But we always had great robust debates and it was good. You know, you want a robust debate because that brings out the new ideas and um, and they give us a hard time. And the good thing then, though, was we were beating them in the Bledisloe, so it was made it a bit easier to have the argument. Exactly. It's a bit more of a toehold there. I was going to ask you, though, I mean, what about the way uh, New Zealand seems to be behaving at the moment and, and even, you know, recently calling for expressions of interest from Australia to be part of their competition? You know, you, you sit back and you've, you've been there. What do you make of that? I'd, I'd, be, I'd be saying, sure, guys, you know, can we cut, or put it bluntly, can we cut the crap and get on with life? I mean, seriously. <laughs> I mean, look, for many years, there's been a number of provinces in New Zealand who thought they should have been in Super, super Rugby um, as well, which, okay, that's, that's fair. But, you know, uh, professional competitions aren't just about whether you, who's winning on the field each week. It's also about the reach into markets. You know, the sponsors want to know they've got a market. I, I can't for the life of me believe that, uh, the New Zealand sponsors would be content with the four and a half million people in New Zealand. It'd be like running a national competition in Sydney. 
Um, and as we know, how hard even the NRL has with getting sustaining the number of clubs they have in Sydney. So imagine trying to sustain 10 clubs in New Zealand with four and a half million people. And it's not the only, okay, it's the number one sport in the country, but there's a bit of rugby league in, in Auckland and there's a bit of football throughout the country as well and, and obviously other sports, netball and things of that nature. So they haven't quite got it all to themselves. So I'd, I'd, be, I'd be calling their bluff, uh, well and truly. And the best thing to do is beat them on the field. Then they respect you. goes back to respect again. Yeah, that'd be, uh, that'd be nice when the opportunity uh, arises. The World Cup in Australia in 2003, that delivered $44 million to the game in Australia. And now so much of that money seems to have been squandered. What should have happened? Should there have been some sort of future fund? Um, I mean, you must be, you, you work so hard to deliver that. You, you must be sad about that. Immensely. Um, you know, the World Cup, apart with, you know, we would love to have won it. But it wasn't the sole reason uh, for hosting it. Um, we used to say if we made one dollar out of the World Cup, we would have achieved things anyway. And growing the game across the country, um, you know, it was, it was a prime objective as well. You know, we, we were doing okay, um, but we needed to you know, really make more of a, uh, a bigger footprint uh, in Australia for, for rugby, and, and this was a great opportunity. The fact that we then made you know, about $45 million um, was one of the reasons why John O'Neill ended up uh, CEO of uh, Football Federation Australia and I'm running the A-League because um, the then board decided that they weren't going to have a foundation because that's what John wanted to exactly to do. He was, he was going to model it on um, the Olympic uh, Foundation which John Coates had set up, ring fence the money, invest it. Um, and by this, if that had happened, they would have over $100 million now in a foundation um, and you know the same as uh, well you know the Australian Olympic Committee Australian Olympic Foundation you know depending on the on the markets but at the moment you know about 160 million um, it provides a guaranteed return to uh, the Australian Olympic Committee every year um, over, over, and over the four-year period so that could have been rugby um, and should have been rugby um, but you know um, politics at state level and at the board level, um, saw John out of the job. And you, you, you sit back and think, you know, seriously, you just had a CEO, which all you know, which has led to your sport, you're winning Bledisloe's Cup, Super Rugby's rating well, just hosted the most successful World Cup in, in history of the game, and you move your CEO on. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it, it, is, it is frightening stupidity. Um, and that point there, because if that hadn't happened, the game would be totally different today, without a shadow of a doubt. Totally different, oh, in a successful way. I mean, by that. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible to think that that, that moment in time uh, changed so much, and and so much for so many uh, individuals as well. Well, it, it was it was pure narrow mindedness and selfishness uh, that caused that problem. That could not cause that. That caused you know for John to leave. Um, and changed the whole dynamic. They, they um, spent a lot of money. Money was given to the state unions. Um, the uh, you know, New South Wales had already gone broke in 2000, um, and we were able to you know, you know, give them a loan and, and dig them out of that hole. That's when I went back as CEO for a while. Um, and then uh, I think it was about 2000, and well, towards the end of the decade of the 2000s, Queensland went broke again, you know, despite the, the money that had been spent on from the World Cup. Um, again, you know, we, we, bailed, we gave them a loan, bailed them out, got them back on their feet. Now, if they'd had, you know, the foundation there today, they would have been able to borrow against that. Mm. 
but you know, instead they're in a difficult situation, and I'm sure Hamish McLennan w- would wish the same thing that he had, you know, a, a, a foundation behind him uh, of over 100 million dollars, and that could have been. Well, there's a couple of things there. I mean, you you, you would hope uh, that if, and it's a big if, I know, but if we did manage to land the 2027 World Cup, that maybe some of those you know lessons from the past might be learned. Well, one of their managers, I'll let the names that came to see me and asked, you know, how do we do it? What do we need to do? And, you know, obviously Matt had done it. I said, well, you know, he's had a bit of a chat. And I said, when you get closer to it, happy to, happy to help. Um, and I said, but um, tell people now that the surplus will go into a foundation. In fact, I'd create the, well, I think they've got a program foundation now, yeah. remember? Um, or, you know, ring fence it, put up the barbed wire, protect it. It'll be another long time before you, you host a, 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 a rugby world cup. So the, and it seems to be they're the only ones who are putting their hand up. So it's a great opportunity. And, you know, it, it again, can rejuvenate the game and, and, and put some money in the bank. I mean, sport, you can't go to the stock market and raise capital. So you either jerk, put up the fees, um, crack a big broadcast deal, or bring in private investment, take your pick. But if you run a successful World Cup, major event, well, then that's also a similar sort of fundraising. There's a couple of things there, too, that... Um, that- We've sort of almost got to and out of the back of the discussion earlier about uh, about Sailing Australia, and that is the change in governance. Now, you and John O'Neill, um, before you left, it was it was uh, 2012. I think you were really pushing for that change in government uh, governance, a more centralised system, perhaps along the lines of the New Zealand system. Some steps have been made towards that, but um, but clearly not far enough. What would what would your vision be for that? Well, it, it, that in 2012, we produced a report for the board um, which showed, put aside the broadcast ratings and, um, uh, and you know, attendances and so forth, but the rugby metrics on playing the game, you know, how we were winning uh, or not winning enough, both super rugby and test level, uh, in, you know, full analysis of the game, our injury levels, things of that nature, uh, our coaching stock, uh, coaches coming through, all of that was lagging. Um, and, you know, it doesn't bring um, uh, the business down straight away, but, you know, it, in three or four years, we could see we didn't make change. Um, we, we, would, we would lose more lose more than we win. At the end of the day, you know, if you're in sport, you've got to win um, or win, win, your, win your fair share. So, um, again, that was sort of like, like we did in sailing. It wasn't so much, a, you know, a con- there was no constitutional changes, no ownership changes. It was just putting in place organisational changes and a better way of doing things. Um, again, sadly, uh, selfishness and um, um, narrow-mindedness uh, blocked that. And um, well, the result was, you know, the Super Rugby teams went backwards. You know, in fact, a few of the new, or well, one of the couple of new directors when they joined the board of ARU a while back, a few CEOs who uh, were putting their hand up over the last few years to be uh, you know, in the recruitment level, I gave them a copy of the report. I said, you know, here it is. It's been written already. Um, and it was it off the back of that, we also looked at the uh, Trans-Tasman competition uh, to, to rejuvenate. But it is looking after your asset, which is your players, um, because at the end of the day, he who has the best players and owns the players, has the best game and, and owns the game. Um, so it's looking after the player investment, coach investment, um, when New Zealand was getting beaten by, uh, you know, the, the Wallabies were beating the All Blacks on a more regular basis, um, New Zealand didn't like that, so they wanted to change. So they went away and reconstructed their coaching system, 
Um, that's why they can move coaches around the super rugby teams. Uh, doing so, why why their players highly skilled when they come into the competitions? Because they've, they've built it up from super rugby, built it up from club, their form of club rugby and uh, provincial rugby. Uh, they, they went, spent a lot of time and effort in that. And because they said to their provinces or their states, their provinces, our states, um, uh, you, you need to make, we need to have the All Blacks number one in the world consistently. And that was the aspiration we had in 2012, uh, is to make, make, us, make the Wallabies consistently uh, number one. Um, again, you know, John O'Neill, absolutely. Uh, you've got to be number one. Okay, you're not going to get it every year, but uh, yeah, it's got to be your own. Um, well and truly, and I, I think that's what Australian rugby needs to get back to. What would I do? Yeah, I'd, I'd just you know sit down with the Kiwis and say, guys, we can make this work together. Uh, get the Super Rugby competition up and running. Manage the players better. Uh, so yes, take a you might call it control, but you know, get the states together and say we need to a, a higher skill level. Um, it's, it's Super Rugby. We need to make the game more entertaining. It's not just about changing the laws of the game. It's how you play the game. And the Kiwis can play pretty entertaining rugby. Um, sadly, I've watched a few games, you know, more so last year, out of uh, France and, and England, and some of their games are more entertaining than our <laughs> Super Rugby games. Uh, so that, that goes down to coaching and, and players. All of that seems so much easier said than done to, to get the states across the line with that stuff. Well, you know, because it's, I mean, you, you sit down with them and say, because we're broke. Like the game is broke. You know, now, yeah, we can either all go back to just playing club rugby and pick a Wallaby team from Randwick versus you know, Manly and the Brothers versus uh, uh, South. This is the way we get ourselves out of it. You've got to give up things, yes. But, you know, do you want success or do you just want to go back to being, you know, a fourth tier, fifth tier sport? Take your pick. I know which I'd pick. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? <laughs> That's what I've been successful in sport because it's not that hard. I mean, it's not, it, it is not really that complicated. It's, it's, you know, I, I went to a uh, dinner, a lunch, and they asked, you know, I was speaking at, you know, I was at the AOC last, early this year, I think it was late last year. And, you know, they were going, someone was asking questions about broadcast ratings and this and that, and, you know, variations here and laws. I said, no, guys, guys, it's just, you just got to play quality sport. That's what it's about. The players, you know, that don't don't spend more time worrying about what's going to happen in the in the square in the in the green rectangle, and less time worrying about what's going to happen, you know, in the in the boardroom and everywhere else. So, Matt, you've obviously you know you've thought a lot about all this stuff over the years, um, and, and twice you applied for the the top job at Rugby Australia. Twice you missed out, um, having given the game so much over the years. How did that affect you? Um, what did you learn from from those experiences? Well, each time I applied, and it was, you know, after 2003, so it was 2004, I then went on to set up, um, uh, you know, work for John at Football Federation, got the opportunity to set up the A-League. You know, you don't, you don't give me too many opportunities in life to start a new competition. Uh, well, actually, too, I did it in rugby as well. So that, that, was, that was pretty special. And a sport I had very little, you know, knowledge of. So that, that was good. Um, the next time I uh, dipped out, I ended up going uh, working uh, in Japan for a couple of years. Um, that was amazing, a great experience, um, something which would not have happened if I'd, if I'd, uh, if I'd gone on to, uh, in, into rugby. Um, so I, and then you know, came from that to sailing and now to the Australian Olympic Committee. So, and even you know, in recent uh, months when myself and Peter Wiggs put our hands up and said, we can help, okay, they chose not to. 
but I get on with what I do. I mean, any disappointment is soon removed by the opportunity of, of what has come along afterwards. I was going to ask you, I am going to ask you about uh, about that opportunity in recent months because, you know, you're sitting there at the AOC, one of the best jobs in sports, if not the best job in sports administration in Australia, and then you get the opportunity to, to go back. Uh, John Coates uh, says, yep, no problems, understand you love rugby. And then the board kiboshes it. I mean, how did you react to that? Because clearly that's a that's an itch that you still want to scratch. Well, it is, I guess. And I guess now I've scratched it by saying, you know, he was the op- myself and Peter. He was put our hands up. Uh, Peter spoke to the board. What disappointed me most was that the board leaked like a sieve. Um, I mean, I actually said to Paul McLean, I said the Australian Rugby Australia board has taken. Um, leaking to a new extreme, you've, you've turned it into streaming. I said it must have been live streaming because I had uh, journalists on the phone before your meeting was finished. Uh, I said, and, and Paul, all you have to, all you had to do is say to Peter and I, no thanks. It's fine, you know. But but they it went on for you know 24, 48 hours. Um, at the end of the day, they they they've chosen to go their way. I, as I said, I wish them well, and I, I sincerely do. Um, uh, the Someone rang me the other day, oh, are you going to put your hand up and they can start the process? And I said, no, I've already said that. I was offered to, to come as managing director, uh, but not going through a process. Um, I said, the people who would be interviewing me for the process know far, far less about um, sport and the game than I do. So I, I really don't think it's a point in that. Yes, I can uh, I can see your point. Um, you do have the Olympic Games to look forward to. I mean, it's not a bad fallback option. That's just around the corner. And fingers crossed... Um, there is a, a great result for Australia. Uh, is there any job, though, that you'd still love to do? Um, well, since I turned 60 this year, I think I'm getting a bit limited. In that. <laughs> <laughs> limited in that. As I said before, you don't, you don't hang around too long. You only, you're only remaining to make a difference. So um, I don't, uh, don't intend to do that. And also, you know, the, the, the role I'm in now, you're, you're 100% right, it's very fulfilling. Um, it's not just the Olympic Games, um, you know, we've got uh, Tokyo and then we've got Beijing uh, and Paris um, coming up it's not far away now 2024 um, so I, you know but it's also the you know as I said working with our member sports on, on for, for their advocacy for their support you know working with government uh, on the importance of sport in society and education and health um, and there's, I think that's that's what's giving me a great challenge and a and b great interest um, in in not just you know, it's not just a competition or a particular sport, but it's also that that you know, uh, role of sport in society, uh, which is which is which is so important, and and that that's uh, you know given me uh, a, a broader landscape uh, to work on, which, I, which I'm really enjoying. Um, and yeah, yeah, look, I I got a bit frustrated about what was happening in rugby early this year, and I thought, trying to play, I can't believe where they're going and what they're trying to do. Um, so that's when I had the chat to Peter. And as I said, we put up our hand, but okay, not to be. Uh, onwards and upwards uh, with, with the Olympic movement. And finally, uh, there are clubs, organisations all over the country. You know, every day you can read or hear about another local competition that's decided to shut up shop. There will be clubs, teams that, that go under. Um, as a sports administrator, what's your advice for... Uh, for all sorts of sports and, and community groups who are going to try and survive and come out of the back of what we're going through right now? Sport will always survive. I mean, at the end of the day, at the grassroots level, club level, it's volunteers. 
I mean, you can cut your costs right back. I mean, I've, I've been talking to state governments and federal government, and I know a lot of local governments are doing this already, waiving the fees for ground hire or venue hire and things of that nature, which takes a load off the, the local clubs. Um, yeah, it's going back to rugby. It, sports very resilient. Rugby is very resilient. You know, people have written um, uh, the epitaph, so to speak, of, of sports and rugby before, um, and. Uh, you just well if you're coming back what i said before you care about the sport you'll make it happen you know it might take a little bit longer it might take a bit harder you might have to regroup you might have to start again but it, it can happen and it will because people love their sport in australia indeed they do um matt let's hope that we see the olympics next year in japan i know that uh, there's a lot of water to go under that bridge but you know fingers crossed because all australians love the olympics and love to see their athletes doing well at the Olympics and uh, and all the best for Australia's success. Matt Carroll, thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Nick. My guest on the Playmakers Playbook this week, Matt Carroll. You can't help but wonder what the world is going to look like come July 23 next year. That's the date set down for the Olympics opening ceremony in Tokyo. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a five-star rating or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on the Playmakers Playbook. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.